The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a new year, God. Uh, Thank you for sustaining us through 2019 by your grace. Thank you for the ways that you have worked in us and through us over the past year, and we look with anticipation of how you will be faithful to do the same this year, Lord. Bless us as we dig into your word. Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there should be a red Bible in the seat in front of you, and it's page 952 in the red Bible. Um, We're going to just kind of jump right in. Probably do this every week. Just jump in, read the word, and then go back through. If you're new here, Um, just encourage you to keep your Bible open for the whole sermon because we go back and look at it again and again throughout throughout the message. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. This is God's word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever been hurt by the church? Have you ever been hurt by someone in the church? When Trish and I lived in St. Louis uh, and I was in seminary, money was very tight. And we were attending this large church, probably about three or four times the size of Jake as well, church. And they were looking to reinvigorate their college ministry. And so they asked if, if Trish and I would help lead that ministry and get it back off the ground. Uh, mostly there was college students that would come home for the summer. Um, and then there were some college students that were there throughout the year. And so I was asked to do this and agreed to do it. And, uh, and, and the advisor that was placed over me was the youth director of the church. And we met before the summer came about, and I, and I asked him, I said, hey, listen, you know, money's really tight, we're in seminary, we have one income, money's going out really quickly, uh, is there any chance that the church would pay for me to have a cell phone for the summer, just like a track phone, nothing too expensive or too fancy, because I'm not at home a lot, and I'm, I'm at school a lot of the times, and I need to contact students, students need to contact me for the summer, there's lots of events, is it okay if I do this, would the church cover that? He's like, sure, go ahead and do that. 
Well, we went throughout this summer, and we got to the end of summer, and I was meeting back up with my uh, supervisor, and I, I brought my receipts from my cell phone, and I gave them to him. I said, here are my receipts from the summer from my cell phone. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. I said, okay, here you go. Take it. He's like, why are you giving them to me? Because you said that you would cover the expenses for the cell phone for the summer. No, I would never say something like that. That isn't something that I would, I would do. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but when money is super tight, you're sitting there thinking, okay, what do I have to cut out in my life? Maybe we can't go visit family, maybe whatever it might be. And so it was really hurtful, and I got really angry right there with him. I didn't yell and scream, but, but it, was, it was clear I was frustrated. And so like any immature Christian would do, I decided to take matters in my own hands. And I figured, you know what? I will just take the money out of my tithe. <laughs> I'll just take some money. Instead of giving 10%, I'll give 8% for a while. And I'll, and I'll recoup the cost because that was going to the church anyways. Now, now, that was immature. And if I knew now what I knew then, I would have gone to the pastor and said, listen, we need help here. I'm frustrated. Can you help work through this with us? But that's how I responded to it in that time. Have you ever been hurt by the church? Have you ever been hurt by someone in the church? Have you ever been betrayed by someone in the church? You know, one of the things I love to do here at Jake as well is meet with newcomers. If you're new here, matter of fact, I'd love to meet with you. Just mark me with the pastor in the connection card. But I meet with you and I will tell you that hardly a week goes by that someone does not share about how a church has hurt them. You've shared stories about how, how there were elections held and how you voted no against something, and yet the report back from the front is that it was unanimously approved. I know people from multiple churches where the head pastor was confronted on issues that were suspect, and as a result, that staff person was promptly released from their job. I have heard stories of how Pastors have misappropriated funds for personal gains. Recently, a friend shared with me that when, when, when they were first married, um, they were struggling in their marriage. Uh, probably the only one. I know none of the rest. That's a joke. Anyways, they were really struggling in their marriage. And so in humility and vulnerability and transparency and, and courage, they went to the elders to share their struggles in their marriage. Well, that Sunday, one of the, uh, one of the elders who, who was a self-appointed prophet, always be careful of self-appointed prophets, just FYI, called the husband up front, shared their struggles in front of the entire congregation. It gets worse. He then proceeded to punch the man in the stomach to try to get the demons out of him. You can't make this stuff up. Have you ever been hurt by the church? If your answer is no, no, I'm assuming this is your first day at church. Welcome. We are so glad to have you here. <laughs> it has been said that uh, guns don't hurt people. People hurt people. Churches hurt people. Because churches are filled with imperfect, messy, hurtful people. And one of the messiest, worst churches throughout the history of the church is the Corinthian church. It was extremely immoral. Um, there were 
there was a man sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the, and the church uh, declared it as gospel freedom. Uh, there was division in the church based on which traveling evangelist somebody favored. Uh, the apostle Paul uh, was questioned about his apostleship, dismissing really any sort of confrontation that he would have with them. Uh, Christians were suing one another in the courts, defaming the name of Christ. Their worship was extremely disorderly and confusing. Uh, it was distracting from the worship of God. When they would celebrate the Lord's Supper together, the rich people would get full, they would get drunk, and the poor people would be starving. They would have nothing for the Lord's Supper. Instead of using their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, they used their spiritual gifts to lord it over one another and build themselves up. In 1 Corinthians 11, 7, Paul actually says, when you come together, that is for worship, it is not for better, but it's for worse. It is worse when you come together. And if that all isn't bad enough, there were some in the church that were even denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was an ugly church, full of unrepentant sin, pride, and division, and yet, do you see how Paul addresses them? Look in verse 3 and 4 with me. Paul says to them, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but if a church had hurt me the way that this church had hurt Paul, I probably would not have started my email to them in this way. As a matter of fact, I probably never would have emailed them in the first place. And yet here you see Paul, who is working with this messy, hurtful church, engaging with them and saying, I give thanks to my God always for you. Now I think it's important to make a distinction here. Paul is not addressing an unbelieving church filled with false teachers. He does that in others of his letters, and when he does that, he is very harsh with them. If you look at the book of Galatians, he says, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. May they emasculate themselves. Those are pretty harsh words. But here, Paul is dealing with a church that is immature, that is struggling, that is trying to figure out a biblical world and life view, figuring out how their faith applies to the church and applies to their life. They're Christians, immature, messy, hurtful Christians. And so Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. And so here's the question. How can Paul write these words with any authenticity? How could Paul wish them grace and peace? How could Paul give thanks to them, for them, to God? Well, the secret to doing this, which is so important to us who have been hurt by the church, are found in these first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. And so I want to look at these verses together with this question in mind, how could we possibly love the most unlovely parts of Christ's church? And the first thing we see here is to acknowledge, or excuse me, to remember our identity. Emphasis in this is R, O-U-R. Remember, our identity. First, our united identity. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ 
Jesus. Paul is asserting his apostleship here, which again, many of the Corinthians have questioned. And Paul's apostleship is important because it means that he was sent by Jesus, commissioned by Jesus, to establish the doctrines of the church at the very beginning, to be the foundation of the church. And so he's, he's asserting his apostleship here, saying, listen, there is authority here. Listen to what I am about to say. And then he continues and he says, and our brother Sosthenes. Paul does not say my brother Sosthenes. He does not say your brother Sosthenes. Paul is emphasizing the oneness of the church, that even though they are thousands of miles away, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are a family in Christ with God as their father. Now, now what does this do? How does this help us love the unlovely parts of the church? Well, think about it. Who in your life can mess up time and time again? Who can frustrate you to your very wits end? And yet, if anyone talks bad about them, you will defend them to the death. It is your family, right? Your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, they, they'll frustrate you. They'll make you so angry. But don't you talk bad about them. Paul's emphasis on oneness continues. We're not only brothers and sisters in this one family, but he says in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. This word church, the Greek word, which is the original language of the New Testament, is ekklesia, which means assembly. Now, there are probably many assemblies in the city of Corinth. There's many assemblies in every city. You know, they probably had an assembly to to take care of the temple. They had an assembly to run the government. They probably had a pickleball assembly. You know, it's getting popular. There were many ecclesias in Corinth, but this one that Paul is writing to is a unique ecclesia, a unique assembly. This term is actually used in the Old Testament to, to, to refer to the called out ones, to an assembled people. And so what Paul says makes them unique is that they are the church, the ecclesia, the assembly of God. Notice Paul doesn't say of a God, but just of, of God. Because unlike in Paul's world and in our world today, Paul knows that there is only one God, only one true God. Paul continues and says, to the, that is singular, not a, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And so if I were to ask you, how many churches are in Green Bay? You might say, oh man, I don't know, about 200. And you're right. But if you said one, maybe you'd be even a little more right. Because there is one church, a connected church, a unified church. And and this church in Corinth is a part of the church of God that is located in Corinth. Let me share it this way. Over Christmas break, we went over to Eau Claire. And and we as a family belong to uh, the YMCA here in Green Bay. And we enjoy it. When we went over to Eau Claire for Christmas, just thought, man, like I need to, you know, get a little bit of exercise, work off all that junk that I ate for Christmas. And so I went to the YMCA and I had my card and I went in and they had a scanner and I put on her scanner and it, and it beeped and I said, okay, is that, am I okay? He's like, yeah, you're good. Go on in. Why is it that I could, that I could just go right in? Because, because even though there's different locations, 
of the YMCA. It's, it's one organization. It is unified. And so my membership here is valid there as well. Paul is writing to the members of this one local church of the great global church. He's writing to the church in Corinth. And he's communicating, listen, we are a part of that same ecclesia, that same assembly together. You know, if you're a Christian, you, you, are, you, you may be a member here at Jacob's Well Church, but you are a member of the church at large. You are a member of the universal church, the eternal church, the invisible church of God throughout many uh, locations with many denominations and really in every generation. And so Abraham, Father Abraham, is not only our father in the faith, he is also our brother in the faith because the church, the people of God, are eternal. This means that we are one church with Bethel Baptist Church, with Highland Crest Church, with Celebration Church, with New Hope Church, and the list goes on and on and on. We are united as the church of God. You know, Membership in the church of God is far greater than membership in the YMCA. You can let your YMCA membership lapse. But membership in the church of God is eternal. You are typically acquaintances or strangers with those that you see at the YMCA. But in the church of God, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. With God as your heavenly father. With the YMCA membership, you have to pay, and then you have to pay, and then you have to pay, and then you have to pay to stay a member of the YMCA. But you know what? To be a member in the church of God, it has been paid for you once and for all and forever. It is a greater membership in the church of God than any other ecclesia in the world. Now, when we ask the question, how could we possibly love the most unlovely parts of Christ's church? Why does our unified identity matter? Well, it's because like a biological family member, no matter how wonderful or how messed up that local manifestation of the church is, like in Corinth, we are united to them. We cannot divorce them or abandon them. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we are called to be for them and not against them, to work for their welfare. Now, don't get me wrong, there are some churches that wear the name church, that are not a true church of God, that do not believe the good news of the gospel or preach the good news of the gospel. But many churches are just messy churches. They're broken churches. They're hurting churches. They're immature churches filled with immature people like you and like me. And so we are called to love them well. So we are to remember our united identity, but also our holy identity. Paul continues to describe the people of the true church, those who are born again, who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. And Paul says to this messy, messy, sin-laden church in Corinth, he says this as we continue. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, for many of you, if you're familiar with the Bible, that word sanctification is something that you're familiar with. Um, it's, it's used most often in our circles to describe a process in which we're putting sin to death and growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in freedom and joy in the gospel. That's how it's used in Romans 16, 1 Thessalonians 4. And in those cases, sanctification is a noun. 
But in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, sanctified is a verb, which means it is an action word. And not only is it a verb, but it is a perfect verb. It is a passive verb, and it is a participle, which may mean nothing to you, but let me explain to you why that is so extremely important. It is a passive verb, this word sanctified. When it's passive, it means you don't do it, but it has been done to you. It is perfect, meaning that it is a completed action. And it is a participle, meaning that it has a continuing result in your life. You know, a friend of mine will say, you know, if we are the body of Christ, I'm that, that ugly, hairy mole on the back of the body of Christ because I'm just disgusting. But what Paul says here is that, no, you have been sanctified. You messy Corinthians, you messy Christians, you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. You have been made holy in Jesus. You have been set apart by Jesus. You have been dedicated to the Father in Jesus. This is your identity. This is your purpose. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of how much you mess up, you have been sanctified by God. This has not been done by you, but for you. And it is perfect. It has been completed, but it has continuing results for the rest of eternity. Paul continues, verse 2, we'll start at the beginning. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This word saints is really closely connected with the word sanctified. They have some of the same root formation to it. But here it's not a verb, it's an adjective. It's describing the Christian and it's saying, this word saint means holy one or set apart one, consecrated one. And what Paul says here is that, that, that they are saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord. And so we would disagree with our Catholic friends on what a saint is. We don't think saints are super duper Christians. It says very clearly here in verse 2 what saints are. A saint is Everyone, in every place, in all times, who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so did you know that if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Not because of what you have done, but because of what God has done on your behalf. And so what Paul has done in these first two verses as he has shown us God's perspective on messy Christians. Paul has been given a godly perspective on messy Christians. You see, we need to have a God-given perspective on messy Christians because a perspective changes everything. I don't know if you've ever um, seen the, the show Undercover Boss, but in that show, Undercover Boss, basically what happens is this big CEO of this huge company will go undercover. They'll, they'll dress up like they just came off the street or something, and they'll come in as an apprentice. And they're given a mentor in the company who will teach 
how to do the different jobs of the business, the business that they own or that they, that they run, but they're undercover. And so they'll teach them how to, to vacuum or to wash cars or to flip burgers or whatever the company is about. And if you ever watch this show, it's, it, it, it kind of follows the same plot line and that this CEO boss person can't do the job very well. Uh, they actually slow down the process. They're kind of messy. They're not very good at, at what this person's trying to train them to do. And sometimes the people are very gracious. But other times, they're, they're kind of mean. They're kind of cruel. They're like, I can't stand this person. Right? They're, hor- they're messy. They, they don't do the job well. It's slowing me down. It's frustrating. They get angry. But then the undercover boss is, under, is uncovered at the end of the show. And their perspective changes. And it's amazing. Now they say, yes, sir, no, (laughs) ma'am. Why? Because they have now seen the true identity of the one that they have been working with. Paul has been given a God-given perspective on messy Christians who have hurt him, who have sinned rampantly. They are not defined by their sin. They're defined by by God, and by what he has done. And so that's why Paul can say to them, grace and peace to you. And he can say, I thank God every time I remember you. Because Paul knows, Paul has been given God's perspective on those Christians who have hurt him and hurt one another. We need a divine perspective that in Christ, they are brothers and sisters in Christ, that in Christ, they are members of the one universal church, that in Christ, they are sanctified, consecrated to the Lord, that in Christ, they are saints, they are holy, they are set apart by God and for God. And so this allows us to genuinely in faith love the most unlovely parts of Christ's church. So how do we love Christ Church. Remember our identity, our united identity, our holy identity. Secondly, celebrate their giftedness. This may seem like it doesn't fit with the theme that we're talking about, but I think you'll notice very quickly that it does. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Now certainly he's talking about the grace of salvation, but even more explicitly he goes on and he says that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you in other words as God has given you spiritual gifts as he's enriched you in your gifts this confirms that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit because the ways that you have been gifted is only possible if you belong to Christ Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is acknowledging that God has been abundantly generous to them in providing for all of the needs of that church through the gifts of the different members of that church there in Corinth, meaning that God has gifted them in leadership, in mercy, in service, in administration, in discernment, in evangelism, in hospitality, and so on and so forth. But did you notice here in this passage, what are the most prominent gifts in the Corinthian church? Look at verse 5 with me again. It says that in every way you were enriched, remember that word, enriched in him that is in Christ, in all speech and all knowledge. 
Paul says you are enriched in the gifts of speech and knowledge. And he uses this word enriched because before they were Christians, they were already gifted in these areas, just as a gift of God's common grace. They were intelligent people. They were well-spoken. But when they were born again, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit, God enriched those gifts to a supernatural level for his glory. Gifts in speaking, gifts in knowledge. Paul was thankful that God had given them these gifts. But here's the thing that is so interesting about Paul giving thanks for these gifts. Is that the same gifts that Paul gives thanks for are the very same gifts that were used to cause division in the church of Corinth. If you looked over to chapter 13, which I don't think we have time to flip there, but if you look there, it's that chapter that you're probably familiar with from, from weddings, right? The love is this, you know, things like that. And, and, and he goes on, and I'll read it to you, but he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and, and of angels, that's a, that's a spiritual gift given by God, but have not love. That's their problem. They have these gifts, these great gifts, but they don't have love. And then he goes on, I'm only a noising gong, a clanging symbol. And if I have all prophetic powers and understandings, all mystery and knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, those are great spiritual gifts. If I have all those things, but have not love, I am nothing. And then he goes on and on and on saying, hey, here, look, you are so gifted. You're so gifted. You're so gifted, but those are not used in love, and it's causing division in the church. You know, when I became a Christian, God had enriched uh, one of the things that he had gifted me with. So one of the things that, that, I, that God's gifted me with, and it feels weird sharing this, but one of the things that God has gifted me with is with gathering people. And I didn't even realize that this is something I was gifted in until like several years after I was a Christian. And, and I was in seminary, and, and I had to write out a resume, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And someone pointed out, oh, yeah, that's, God has gifted you in that area. And so so like I would go to church and I would, I would bring anywhere be, or my, 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 uh, my college ministry and I would get two to 10 to 15 guys from my fraternity house who didn't know Jesus. I'd just knock on their door and say, hey, let's go to church. And they'd all come. Like I just thought that was normal. I thought that was easy for everybody to do. And so I, I would gather people and I, I loved doing it and it came natural and it was easy to me. But here's the thing, when, when I was enriched in that gift for God's good, I also used it for my own sinful intentions. So, so maybe it would be Thursday night and, and we'd be having a movie and I'd want my friends to come over and I'd call them up and say, hey, come watch a movie with us. Oh, well, I have a test tomorrow. I need to study, you know, so I do well in school and so I can pass and stay in school. Well, what are you doing at 1 a.m.? Nothing. Well, you can study then. You can study to Come, come. So they would come and then they'd fail their test. You see, the greatest gifts that God has given to us are also our greatest weaknesses. You can imagine when we're first married, and I'm telling Trish at like 3 o'clock, hey, by the way, 30 people are coming over for a game night tonight, right? Like this, this hurts other people when you don't use it in godly ways. Hear this really closely. Most often, our greatest weakness is our God-given greatest strength used in an ungodly way. Let me say it again. Most often, our greatest weakness is our God-given greatest strength 
used in ungodly ways. I see this in myself. (laughs) I see this in our elders. I see this in our staff. I see this in many of you. Some of you are very gifted at leadership and teaching and knowledge, but you have to be careful because you can use those things to manipulate others or to force your own agendas or deal with people harshly or impatiently. Some of you are very gifted with service and mercy and caring for others, but you have to be careful because you can find your identity in that and then you can burn yourself out and you can neglect your family if you have one. Some of you are gifted in encouragement, like like Barnabas was. And yet when someone is doing something that is contrary to Scripture, you're still encouraging because that's all you know how to do. Most often, our greatest weakness is our God-given greatest strength used in ungodly ways. Now, let's relate this back to the original question. How can we love the most unlovely Christians in the church? Well, the reality is there's a good chance that they hurt you by using their God-given gift in ungodly ways. And so instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, we can say, you know what? I thank God for that gift that he has given to you. But it has been used in a way not to build up the body of Christ, but to tear down the body of Christ. And we can be free. We can be free to go back to them and to challenge them and to encourage them in their giftedness, but encourage them to direct that appropriately for the building up the body of Christ because it is a gift given to them by God. And all of us struggle using our gifts out of our own insecurity to build ourselves up and not the church up. And so understanding and realizing that these people have been gifted by God And maybe they're misusing their gifts, allows us and frees us to go and to encourage them in their gift, but also encourage them to use it properly. So how can we love unlovely church? Remember our identity, our unity, our holiness together. Celebrate the giftedness that God has given to them and to us. And finally, trust in God's faithfulness. You know, the church of Corinth, as we had already talked about, and as we will see over the next 15 chapters, is an absolute mess. Division abounds, sexual immorality abounds, pride abounds, false teaching abounds, division abounds. And yet Paul says this in verse 7, midway through. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is his second coming, who will sustain you. Or who will confirm you, establish you, strengthen you to the end. Do you see what Paul is confident in? Paul is confident that the Corinthians will make it to the end. That they will not abandon their faith. That they will grow in the likeness of Christ. That is what Paul is confident in. But what is even more important is who Paul is confident in. Paul is not confident in the Corinthians at all. He is confident in the God of the Corinthians. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That's the beginning of the sentence. Then at the end, verse 8, who will sustain you to the end. Paul is confident that God will be faithful to sustain the Corinthians, to keep them until the end, to grow them 
in godliness, to work his redemption in them. He says it elsewhere this way. In Philippians 1, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, which is God, God will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 1, 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Paul is confident, not in people, but in the God of those people. Jesus says the same thing in John 10, 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Paul is confident in their preservation because he's confident in God. I mean, think about it just for a second. How many of you here, if you're courageous enough, made a New Year's resolution? All right, like four people, okay? The rest of you are so skeptical about your ability to keep a New Year's resolution that you didn't want to keep one at all because you know how it goes. You're great for the first week. Second week starts to fall off a little bit. By the end of January, you're a complete failure. Who wants confidence in that? I don't. He is confident in God to sustain them, to grow them. Recently, I heard a preacher put it this way. He said, if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. We can't keep a New Year's resolution for more than 30 days. How could we keep our salvation? God is holding our hand through the journey of life. You know, when my wife is crossing a kid across a a busy road, my confidence is, is not in the kid to hold on to her hand. It's her to hold on to their hand. God is holding us. When we want to dart into traffic, he is holding us fast. We will sing and rejoice in that here in a little bit. Verse 8, he continues, God, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will sustain you to the end, guiltless or blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the day when Christ comes and will judge the living and the dead. God is faithful by whom you were called. In verse 7 through 9, Paul makes it crystal clear that it is God who saves the Christians. He's, he, he, he preserves the Christians. And Paul is committed to this immature, messy church because he knows, he's confident that God will not abandon his work in their life. He will not walk away from them. He will not give up on them. And therefore, in verse 8, he says, they will stand guiltless, blameless on judgment day. How can Paul be so confident? How can Paul be so confident that that they will be declared innocent before a holy God when everybody knows they're not innocent? How how can Paul be so certain that they will be blameless before a holy God when everybody knows they're not blameless or or guiltless when everybody knows they're guilty? Same question can be asked of us. James 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. Have you sinned once, ever? You're guilty. And yet Paul is confident that they will be declared not guilty. And the only way this is possible, if there is a guiltless one who takes our guilt on our behalf. You know, it's amazing. When Jesus goes before Pilate, and Pilate examines Jesus, Pilate pronounces his verdict multiple times. John 18, 38, Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. John 19, 4, same book. 
Pilate went out again and said to him, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. John 19, 6, again, he says, I find no guilt in him. Jesus is the only one in the history of the world, to my knowledge, who is found completely guiltless and yet sentenced to death. Why? So that he could take on our guilt and our punishment and our pain and die on our behalf. If you trust in Christ for your salvation, have you lived like a Corinthian this week, indulging in immature, senior, sinful behaviors and attitudes? You know, some of you need to hear today, all of us need to hear today, that God is an attentive, involved, loving Father who will sustain his children to the very end so that on judgment day, we can be confident that we will be declared not guilty because Christ has taken the guilt on our behalf. At the cross, Jesus was abandoned so that we could be adopted by God. At the cross, Jesus was contaminated so that we could be sanctified. At the cross, Jesus was abandoned so that we can trust and rest in God's faithfulness to never leave us or forsake us. Now again, back to the original question. How can we love unlovely Christians, unlovely parts of the church? Because we can be confident that God has not given up on them. We can't give up on them because God has not given up on them. He is still at work in their life. Let me end with this. I'm, I'm out of time. Um, there, a, a while back, a, a couple came who was coming to the church, kind of, you know, disappeared a little bit from the church and wasn't sure what was going on, but, but they started attending another church in town, and so I thought, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, but, but one of our members in the church knew that, that they had been hurt by Jacob's Well Church. Uh, just in case you know, we hurt people too. We don't like, but we do. And so, so, so this member encouraged him, hey, you need to go talk to Pastor Dan. No, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We're fine. We're just going to, no, no, you need to go talk to him. So over months, prodding, you need to go talk to him. You need to go talk to him. Finally, get an email. Hey, can we get together? Sure, we'd love to get together. And, and they share about how they went through a really hard part in their life and how the church was not there for them like they needed them to be. And so, so we wept together, and, and I, I repent. I said, I'm sorry that we didn't love you like you needed in that time. And they forgave me. They forgave us. And they still go to another church. But we've been reconciled. And, and now when we see each other, hey, how's it going? How are the kids? What's going on? you like, We've been reconciled. Some of you are here today because you've been hurt by a previous church. And you have every reason in the book why you should not go back and talk to them. God's word today not only encourages us to do it, it exhorts us to do it. In Matthew 5, Jesus Christ himself says this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Friends, Christians, you can only be faithful to your end. You cannot handle how people respond to you. God is calling you to go and to be reconciled to the best of your ability to those in the church who have hurt you. And you can do this because of our shared identity with them, because of their giftedness by God showing the possession of the Spirit in their hearts and because we trust that God is faithful and he never gives up on us just as he never gives up on them. Let's pray. Lord God, 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us courage. Courage to be faithful to what you call us to do. Courage to pursue reconciliation with those who have hurt us. And so, God, I pray for those here who who are in that spot, God, that they would be faithful to do so. If that's another church or this church or if it's me, whoever, that they would go and love them enough to pursue reconciliation. God, this is scary. And so we pray that you would give them courage and strength to do this, Lord. God, as we turn to your table, we are reminded that the guiltless one took on our guilt, that he was abandoned so that we could be adopted. He was contaminated so that we could be sanctified. Let us receive this as a gift of your grace, rejoicing in salvation, knowing that we too are messy Christians, messy Christians loved by a perfect God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.